and remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would be with us and that you would show us yourself in your word and in your sacrament. Bless the reading and preaching of your word. Open our hearts and ears to hear what you would have for us this morning. We pray to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you're like me, you might need to hear something more than once. Uh, I know I have, I'm not saying this has happened often, but maybe once or twice someone's told me I'm hard-headed uh, or uh, thick-skinned or a little stubborn. And so I, if you're like me, I'm not saying you're, you're that way, but if you're like me, you might need to hear something more than once for it to sink in, for it to kind of really take root in our, in our minds and in our hearts. And last week, Father Ben preached from Romans 8, and he challenged the common misconception among American Christians. And this is the misconception, that sufferings and hardships are signs of spiritual failure or signs of a lack of faith. He challenged this misconception by directing our attention to a host of passages from Scripture, but in particular to Romans 8, verse 37, where Paul declares in response to this misconception, no, no, in all these things, right, tribulations, in death, and suffering and persecution and just the hardships and trials of this life, in response to all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Sufferings, troubles, and hardships are realities that every Christian will face in a world east of Eden, in a world broken and marred by sin, death, and the fall. And instead of being signs of spiritual failure or a lack of faith, these sufferings and trials are experiences that God uses to conform us more to the cruciform image of his son, to the suffering image of his son, Jesus. And by these experiences of hardship, God also, this is important, also enables us to participate not only in the sufferings of Christ, but also in his victory. in the power of his resurrection. Listen to Paul express this reality as the deep longing of his heart from Philippians 3. For his sake, for the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen to this again, church. Let it sink in. Sufferings, trials, and hardships are not signs of spiritual failure. Or that God is absent or impotent, without power. Hear Paul's words one more time from Romans 8 in response to this misconception. Paul says, the Lord says, no. In all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And guess what, church? There is no one and nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. 
This is good news, isn't it? This is good news for us who have, who are, and who will experience suffering and trials and tribulations and hardships and loss and trauma and pain in this world. Right, the good news that Paul declares in a propositional statement in Romans 8.37, our gospel lesson this morning portrays in a story, in a true story, which reveals Jesus as the sovereign Lord over his disciples' lives, including their hardships, including their sufferings. It portrays Jesus as the sovereign Lord over his creation, and it portrays Jesus as the sovereign Lord over the fallen principalities and powers that are still at work in this world, raging against God and his people. Knowing that our sufferings and hardships are not signs of spiritual failure, though, does not necessarily make the experience of them any easier. It certainly doesn't take them away. In times of suffering and trial, we struggle to see and hear Jesus clearly. Have you been there? Have you been through a moment, a tough moment, where it's hard to see Jesus in the midst of it. We struggle to see him clearly. We struggle to discern his presence in the midst of such circumstances. Matthew knew this struggle well. Don't forget, Matthew was in the boat. <laughs> Matthew lived a life of struggle and hardship as, as a disciple, as an apostle, as a pastor, as a Christian. Matthew knew well this struggle. And as a result, he knew how vital it is for Jesus' disciples to maintain a clear focus on Jesus as the one in whom God has given all power and authority. God has given him all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And so this morning we come to Matthew's gospel not to learn new information, though I hope we learn something. We come to Matthew's gospel to encounter anew and afresh the risen Lord Jesus. That's what we do every Sunday when we come to the gospel and we hear the gospel read and we come to the table. We come here to encounter anew and afresh the risen Lord Jesus. We want to see clearly and understand correctly who Jesus is. And so I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 14. If you have a Bible... You know, turn if there's one in the pew, and if you must, uh, take out a phone and, uh, and, and turn there. Matthew 14, uh, beginning in the 22nd verse. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go over before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. This is following the, the feeding of the 5,000 what was read for us last week. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Not the boat, against them. Notice that Jesus sovereignly commands his disciples to go ahead of him by boat knowing full well that they would encounter adversity and hardship on the sea. Jesus sends his disciples into a volatile and hostile environment, 
knowing full well what lay ahead of them as they, as they pushed away from the shore. As he even pushed the boat off, Jesus knew that they were heading toward adversity, toward hardship, toward suffering. Being a disciple of Jesus does not spare us from adversity or suffering. And we need to hear this. Even though the disciples are on the sea at Jesus' command and are thus in his will, they are not spared adversity. Listen to that one more time. Even though the disciples are on the sea at Jesus' command and are thus in his will, they are not spared adversity or trial or suffering. There is no promise for us as Christians, as much as we might like for there to be, that we will be spared from suffering or adversity or hardship. If anything, our gospel passage this morning reveals that Jesus sends us into harm's way. He sends us into places where we will experience suffering and trials. The way Matthew tells this story also indicates that he's not simply retelling a story about Jesus sending his disciples off in a boat to go onto the Sea of Galilee. Matthew draws upon the Old Testament's representation of the sea as a symbol of the continued threat the dark forces of chaos pose against God, his people, and his creation. These are forces identified in the Old Testament with figures like Pharaoh and others who deny God and seek to overthrow his rule and harm his people. Listen to Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10. You, it's referencing God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you steal them. You crushed Rahab, that's a sea monster. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty hand. You see, the sea, its waves, Rahab, this, this sea creature, and your enemies are all drawn together in this symbolism, in this parallelism of this passage. The sea here symbolizes the enemies of God, the fallen powers that seek to overthrow the rule of God. Paul identifies these fallen powers as the enemies of God and his people whom we wage war against. Listen to Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it's no small thing, it's no small matter that Jesus sends his disciples out onto the sea. He commands his disciples, go. Go into enemy's territory. And for us, that's the world. It's contested ground. Go. Go into the enemy's territory, into a hostile environment, where you will very likely encounter suffering and hardship. This command was not only for the 12 disciples, we too have received the same command to go. Listen to Jesus' command to the church at the end of Matthew's gospel, and I can't help but think these passages are linked. And Jesus came and said to them, this is Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So you see, Jesus commands us to go into the world, to go into the enemy's territory, proclaiming in word and deed his victory over the enemy, over sin and death, and over the fallen powers of this age. 
and when we submit to Jesus and obey his command to go, and when our ordinary lives, right, our ordinary lives bear witness to the extraordinary power of his resurrection, we will sooner or later draw the ire of those powers for whom Jesus defeated when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in glory. So Jesus sends his disciples out, you and me, on mission for his kingdom into a hostile environment where the fallen powers and principalities are still operating. I grew up on a farm, and since we had pigs, we fed pigs. And because we had feed, we had rats. And because we had rats, we had snakes. We had rattlesnakes. We had good snakes. Corn snakes, rat snakes, you don't kill those. Dad gets mad. But rattlesnakes, you kill. And occasionally, if you ever killed a snake or ever seen a, a snake being killed with a, with a shovel, you know when you cut its head off, it's defeated. It's done. It's, it, it's not going to be hurting you. But its body still has power and life in it. It's writhing. And this is what the powers and principalities that are fallen are still at work in our world. This is what they're like. They've been defeated, but they still have power. They still have life in them. It's the, they're in their death throes. Christ has won. That is not in question. So let's return to Matthew's gospel and see what takes place next. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., so they've been up for a while. Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, as you can imagine. I mean, let's be honest. But immediately... Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. You can also translate this, courage, I am, don't be afraid, take courage. Jesus sends us into the world where we will face suffering and hardships, yet when we obey his command to go, he is not far from us. The disciples were exhausted. They had been struggling for hours. And in the midst of their struggle, likely when their physical, mental, and emotional power was drained, Jesus comes striding on the waves. I think walking on water is too tame of a translation. He just comes striding on the waves confidently. And as Jesus approaches the disciples in the midst of their struggle, they miss him. They misidentify him. In their fear, they mistake him to be a ghost. And they cry out, it is a ghost! I wouldn't judge them too hard. In their struggle, in their exhaustion, and in their fear, they do not recognize the presence of Jesus with them. The disciples could not comprehend that this figure walking to them on the water was Jesus. At this point in Matthew's gospel, the disciples have not come to fully see and know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is fully man and fully God. And so they missed Jesus. They missed Jesus, who was present to them in the midst of their hardship. 
And we also can miss Jesus when we're experiencing suffering and hardship and trials. We can miss his presence with us in the midst of those times. So what does Jesus do when his, when his disciples mistake his presence with them? What he does is he does something immediately. I just love that. Immediately. Immediately he corrects their misconception. Not in, not in a heavy-handed manner. He corrects their misconception by encouraging them and giving them a courageous faith. By these words, take heart, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. In these words, Jesus clearly identifies himself with God as he is known in the Old Testament. We may miss this. The disciples certainly didn't. In Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush by the name I Am. It is I, I am, ego a me is the Greek. It's the same here as it is in Exodus. In the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, is the one who strides upon the waves. He is the one who sits enthroned above the floodwaters, as we recited this morning from Psalm 29. He commands the waters. You see, Jesus corrects the disciples, mistaking him as a ghost by clearly revealing himself to be God with us in the midst of our hardships and struggles. Not just in the good times. Jesus is God with us in the hard times. Jesus is God with us in the midst of our suffering and hardships. Know this, that although Jesus never promises us a life without suffering or hardship, he does promise to be present to us when we obey his command to go out onto the sea. To go out into the enemy's territory to proclaim the enemy's defeat and Christ's victory in word and deed in this city, in Winston-Salem, through our vocations, our jobs, in our neighborhoods, and in our homes, and in our relationships. During times of joy and times of sorrow, during times of health and times of COVID, times of pandemic, it does not matter. Jesus will be present to us and with us. Jesus promises to be present, to be with us. Listen again to Jesus' command to go at the end of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, this is the last sentence of Matthew's gospel. And behold, <laughs> behold is a word that means pay attention. Listen, something important is about to be said here. Jesus said his last words in Matthew's gospel, and behold, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you're suffering right now, if you're experiencing grief and loss, if you are struggling to make sense of our world and your place in it, if you're experiencing hardship, know this, that Jesus is present with you in the midst of your struggle. He is there with you. He is here with us. I know at times it's hard to see him clearly through the tears 
or to hear his voice above the noise and anxiety or worry or fear that we have going on in our minds and our lives and in our hearts. I know it's hard to sense his presence when your circumstances seem to speak against him. Yet there is a deep reality and a profound mystery given to us here. When we experience suffering and hardship in the course of our ordinary lives, live in obedience to Jesus, he is there with us. The one who is with us is the one whom God raised from the dead, giving him all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Yet he is also the one who knows our weaknesses. He knows our sufferings. He knows our struggles. Jesus is present to you and to me both as lion and as lamb. He is present both as the suffering servant and the triumphant king of heaven. Listen again to verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 29. The Lord, Jesus, sits above the floodwaters. The Lord remains king forever. The Lord shall give strength to his people. The Lord shall give his people the blessing of peace. He is there with us. He is the king, and he gives his people strength to endure. And this is why we come to worship every week, so that we can see and hear and encounter the risen King Jesus. We need to see him clearly as he is revealed to us in his holy word. We need to see him clearly as he is revealed in his holy word and as he is present to us in his holy sacrament. We need to hear his voice over and over and over again. And we need to receive the good gifts of his body and blood over and over and over again, week in and week out, so that when suffering hardships do come, and they will, when they arise, we can more, see, more clearly see him through our tears and hear him more clearly over our anxieties and fears. When the disciples clearly hear his voice, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And when they clearly see him as God with us, the God striding on the water, the God who sits enthroned above the waves, they burst out in worship. Look at verse 33. How does our, how does our gospel lesson end? And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The first time these words have happened in Matthew's gospel. They finally begin to see that Jesus is not just any ordinary man. He is God with us. So what do we do, Christian? What does the presence of Jesus call us to do? There are many things, but at least two we can say this morning. The presence of Jesus calls us to regal worship of the resurrected and ascended King Jesus. This one coming to us on the waves in the midst of our struggles is the king of heaven and earth. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. I hope you know that. When we recognize Jesus' presence and his works among us, thereby learning more of his character, the appropriate response is to worship him. This will deepen our relationship of trust in the Lord we love. Worship refines our vision of God. It hones our vision of Jesus better, enabling us to see and hear more clearly Jesus with us 
in the midst of our suffering and hardships. The presence of Jesus also calls us, finally, to a courageous trust. A courageous trust in him as the compassionate and powerful king of heaven and earth. We know he's compassionate. The story just before this was the one of Jesus having compassion on the crowds. Trust cannot be worked up by formulas or emotion, but it grows through various trials and tests as we continue to trust, however imperfectly, in Jesus and God with us. Trust grows out of a relationship with the God who has revealed himself to us in the face of Jesus and in no other way. I want to say this. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the one in whom you have placed your trust that saves you. Your faith will falter and fail, like Peter in the story. But who's the one who pulls him out of the water? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. As we close here, this truth that we've been talking about this morning, I think reminds us of John 20. In the story of Mary Magdalene, she is experiencing trauma and suffering. She's just lost her Savior. He's just been killed. Jesus has just died on the cross. And she comes to the garden, and she encounters Jesus there after the resurrection, and she mistakes him for the gardener. She can't see clearly. I mean, John clearly says that. She cannot see clearly. But once her vision cleared and she saw the risen Jesus with her in the midst of her suffering, her faith was strengthened. Her trust in Jesus was made more sure, and she went away animated by a courageous trust in the risen Jesus to bear witness to the disciples and to others. And these are her words. I have seen the Lord. We have an opportunity to see Jesus in the midst of our struggles. I hope you're looking for him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.